day. Well, last week we began a month of Selah as a series, a purposeful pause, and we spent a little time trying to acknowledge that collectively and individually we have been through the last two years, which in many ways has been collective trauma that's included disruption and discouragement. And we've all experienced that in different ways. And so we wrapped up our series in Philemon in January. We're going to be moving into a new series in March for Lent, leading us to Easter. Just felt it was good in the month of February to do some different things. And uh, so each week will be a little bit different in that way. So last week I did read a little bit from Adria Horn. And she used kind of the analogy and the comparison. She's a military person, and she kind of compared what we've been going through these last few years to her deployment. So forgive me for repeating this, but I know not everyone was here last week. So this is kind of her connecting the dots between what it's like to deploy and return home to what we've all been going through. Some of her thoughts that she wrote. When you come back from deployment, you're expecting it to be great. You're home again. This should be great. But the biggest feeling is that things are different. The kids are different. Your favorite restaurant closed. Your pet died. Your softball team broke up. The couch your partner bought while you were away is great, but it's not the couch you knew. Home isn't normal. It isn't as it was. Things don't meet your expectations, and you seem to have lost control. And so your return experience doesn't feel good at all. Next slide. All the patterns and routines are broken. You've lost your tribe. Your sense of community and belonging at work depended on cohesive social networks, and so many of those have been disrupted during the pandemic. You feel left behind somehow, and it's very hard to process emotionally. Being off balance that way puts people on edge. It throws them off kilter. And then she adds, and no one has been debriefed on this. Just trying to put some language to the stuff that we feel, uh, and, and yet we haven't always had the ability to name. So last week, if you were here, I had everyone write down some individual and church-wide discouragements and disappointments over the last few years. And you all turned them back in as you took communion last week. As I read through them and prayed over them this week, I was struck by the common themes that a lot of us have experienced some of the same things together. And also, I also was struck by the wide range of experiences too. So some things are very much the same and some things are completely different. So some are hurting, just naming some real hard things. Others are really excited right now. So we'll return to these cards later today. But I want to share where the Lord took me even as I was praying over those this week. So if you have a Bible, why don't you open up? Um, I'm going to have you stick your finger in two places. So first, Ezra chapter 3, and secondly, Zechariah chapter 4. And it may take us all a while to find that, so I know. Uh, Those aren't always the go-to's. Ezra chapter 3 and Zechariah chapter 4. Nothing like a good Super Bowl Sunday in the Old Testament tonight. 
Here's what those two books have in common. They are both books that contain messages to God's people after exile. After God's people spent decades away from the promised land. Now I realize that some of us are... Israelite history is either unknown or a little bit fuzzy, Uh, so let me explain a little bit why something from the post-exile era would have any bearing or relevance for us even tonight. So if you'll allow me, kind of back up the storyline of God's people. For many years, through the minor prophets and the major prophets, God continued to speak to Israel and warn her. God continually said, if you persist in your sin, if you continue in your rebellion, I'm sending judgment upon you. And he gave them many, many chances, and he sent many, many prophets really repeating the same theme over and over again. If you break covenant with me, I will send you into exile. That was his message to them. Because of their idolatry and because of their rebellion, and their persistence to go their own way, that's exactly what happened. You read the story. 722 B.C., Assyria came in from the north and took out the northern ten tribes. 586 B.C., the Babylonians then came and they conquered Judah to the south. And they destroyed the temple, captured their leaders, and then took a select few into exile. The the, the exile itself is one of the the single greatest tragedies in the history of Israel. Devastating to live through. If you think about what it would be like to have all of your national symbols raised to the ground, all of your leaders incapacitated and deported, and for those that did physically leave the land, to be uprooted from all that you knew and to be taken away to a foreign land and a foreign culture You were asking, God, if you're actually there, where are you? What are you doing? So, Israel, Judah, served her 70 years of exile in Babylon, and then they returned to the land. Can you imagine what that was like? After having been uprooted and then to return... It was a really challenging season because, again, I don't think I can draw one-to-one with deployment or even our experience, but much in the same way, you're now back home, back in the land, but everything's different and things need to be rebuilt. And you have this kind of sense of a transitional season of disappointment, discouragement. We should celebrate And yet there's work to do. Things are kind of the same, but they're not at all. So you read um, some of the minor prophets, and you read Ezra and Nehemiah in that season, and their rebuilding effort to come back into the land after exile, it was met with fits and starts and opposition and challenges, and they started building some things, but not everything. You read Haggai, Zechariah, some of those other minor prophets, they were sent to tell the people, like, keep building Finish what you started. But if you get an overall sense for this era in the season of Israel, massive season of change, a bunch of transition and rebuilding, 
facing their own disruptions and disappointments. Time has gone on. Change has happened. They're back in the land, but it's all sorts of new. New homes, new people, new challenges, and lots and lots of questions for themselves and for God. So, before I read the message that God speaks into that, I want you to just to get a sense for what this was like. That's why I want you to read Ezra 3. I think this helps paint the picture even more accurately. So, Ezra chapter 3, verse 10. So, after lots of work, the builders finished laying the foundation of the rebuilt temple. Just the foundation. And this is, the, this is the scene at, I'll call it the, the ribbon-cutting ceremony for the foundation of the rebuilt temple, Ezra 3.10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, not goo, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So you kind of get the scene here. Can you, can you see it? Can you hear it? You've got the priests. They're wearing their vestments. They're, they're wearing their ceremonial garb. They're all dressed up. We're told the trumpets are out playing. The Levites have their cymbals out. Trumpets blasting. People wearing their clothes. Cymbals crashing. People are singing responsively, kind of call and response back and forth about the Lord being good and His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. So they're kicking off this temple foundation ribbon-cutting ceremony like no other. And the people are like, God, great shout, praise, celebration, trumpets, cymbals. What a massive celebration. Except, not everybody was celebrating that day. Next verse. It says, But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, the first temple, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. What a collision of emotion, right? Like this is a mixed response. Trumpets. Cymbals. Responsive singing, shouts of praise, shouts of joy, hooray! And then the old men, the ones with history, the ones with memories. Like, do you remember? Do you remember what it was like? By then, they would have been little. Do you remember when I was a kid and I went into Jerusalem and I saw the temple in all of her glory? I walked into Solomon's temple and saw 
beauty and grandeur and the sense of all that was happening there in that place. They aren't swept up in the trumpet, joy-shouting, praise God, your steadfast love endures forever. What do they do? They cry. No, they don't cry. They weep. The Hebrew there means ugly cry, right? They're weeping. Why are they weeping? Because they're looking at this new foundation. They're like, man, that's piddly. That wasn't, that's nothing like it used to be. So yeah, we're back here again. We're out of exile. We're back in the land. Temple's getting rebuilt. But man, it's not like it used to be. And they're crying and they're weeping. This pales in comparison of the good old days. And the result is just this mixture. And I really think it's a profound mixture. Celebration, trumpets, cymbals, shouts of praise intermingled with these old men that are just crying because it's not like it used to be. And I just want to put these out. And to not make light of any of the responses that anyone put on here. Because there were a lot of disappointments. And there were a lot of discouragements. And (laughs) there were some exciting things that people put too. People that don't have a lot of history with our church are like, I'm just so glad to be here. And I was, I was um, surprised because I would read one card that said, what's, like, what's the disappointment, discouragement? Four o'clock on Sunday. <laughs> and then the next card said, you know, I actually like meeting at four o'clock on Sunday. <laughs> and then there were some cards that said, discouragement, still having to wear masks, which goes against the science. And there were other people that put, I'm so glad we're in a church that's taken that seriously. And so I, just to be honest, again, I'm not trying to say that we've in the return of exile. But I get, I get the scene that says, God, you're faithful and good and I'm excited and weeping of like, it's not what it used to be. So, like, mixed emotion isn't new to the people of God. So, I wanted to give you that background before I shared with you from from Zechariah, because I think that picture captures it, the mixed sound of celebration and tears. So now turn over to Zechariah chapter 4. I know these Old Testament books are, they're tricky. They're hard to understand and read. So this book, Zechariah, it's written about the message given to this person named Zechariah. The name Zechariah, anyone know what the name Zechariah means? The name Zechariah means 
the Lord remembers. Yahweh remembers. And for the most part, this book is an amazing book of hope and prophetic imagery to remind God's people that he hasn't forgotten about them. And that God remembers his covenant to his people. And that all that they have been through, even exile, even judgment, punishment for their sin, that God's remembered his covenant to his people and that all that they've been through, the pain and the punishment, now has a message of hope that rings through it. And you read the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah, God reminds them that he is reclaiming his people, that he is reclaiming his city, that Israel's enemies will be driven out and that wickedness one day will be removed. He reminds them in hope that true leadership is coming. He reminds them in hope that all nations will come to know the Lord and that the Messiah will rule one day from Jerusalem and that Israel's sin and impurity is removed. It's a good message still for us today. The Lord remembers. In the celebration and the tears, the Lord remembers. And then the book, again, it's, it's crazy. You read Zechariah and you're like, whoa, this is like psychedelic. It's filled with all these visions, crazy visions, cool prophecies. But if you can sort through them all, there is a very clear and direct and encouraging message of hope to those who were in the land after exile facing critical seasons of change. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach the whole book of Zechariah tonight. I just want to give you one of the pictures that he gives. Zechariah 4, verse 1. This is the one that God keeps unpacking for me in different ways. So I'll read it first. Zechariah 4, it says, The angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand of all gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, nope. <laughs> No, my Lord. We'll pause there. Again, this, this, this imagery, this conversation makes me laugh. Right? The angel comes. Get, the, Zechariah is receiving these visions. And like the angel comes and wakes him up like a man awakened out of his sleep. Which is like what? Oh, who did that? <laughs> yeah. My kids make fun of me for the way that I wake up when I am awoken from sleep. <laughs> I have to be careful. Last week, as I was reenacting the lion eating the bone, my kids made a gif of that and made, sent it out. So I've got to be careful what I do. They're going to recreate and mock me further with my preaching. <laughs> but the angel wakes up Zechariah, startles him out of his sleep like a, like a man being awoken from sleep. What do you see? Well, I see a lampstand. The lampstand has a bowl on it, seven lamps, seven lips on the lamps, and then two olive trees. Good. That's right. Now, what does it mean? I have no idea. 
Do you, do you know what these things are? No, I don't. Lampstand of gold, bowl on top, seven lamps, and then olive trees on the right and the left. As we were having some conversation with the C team about ideas, even for this month, I know Heather was sharing ideas and images with our team around trees, olive trees, and oil. So I'm going to do a little, little Bible review this lampstand motif, the olive tree idea. I'll try and be as quick as I can. Any ideas? Where does a golden lampstand show up in the story of Scripture? Okay, At the end, it shows up in Revelation, which I think this ties into very well. How about early in the story? Where does it first show up? Yeah, it shows up in the tabernacle. It shows up in the temple, but before they build the temple, it shows up in the tabernacle. So Exodus 25 Go to the next slide. Again, I won't read the full of Exodus 25. You get all the details about how to build it and the ornate stuff in there. But Exodus 25, 27, the command to make this golden lampstand to be put in the tabernacle, this portable place of worship for Israel as they were moving around. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. So the golden lampstand was to be set up. And then here's some more practical description. Exodus 27, verse 20, you get some more instructions. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may be regularly set up to burn. In the tent of meeting, outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. So the, the golden lampstand with the seven lamps is to be set out right outside the veil. What's inside the veil? Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. Right outside the veil, a lampstand is to be set up. And it's supposed to be run off of this pure beaten olive oil. The people are supposed to bring it to them. And then those who were the priests were to tend it from evening till morning. So in the night hours, when it's dark outside, the golden lampstand brings light near the presence of God. Right outside the veil. And this is the law established. This picture maybe helps give some information to Zechariah's vision of a golden lampstand and why there are olive trees next to it with a bowl on top of it. So rather than the people having to bring olive oil, you know, pure beaten olive oil to light the lamp and then they have to tend it to make sure it doesn't run out of oil, this one in Zechariah is a golden lampstand with olive trees, like a perpetual supply of olives to provide olive oil to run the lampstand continually. The lampstand is there to show light in the darkness near the veil where God's presence dwells. And the fuel is the oil from the olive tree. So this image of oil, lampstand, light, presence of God. The oil of the tree is to be this endless source of light so that nothing would hinder access to the presence of God. So that God's presence could be enjoyed by the nation, enjoyed by the people, and ultimately for the world. Unlimited, lighted enjoyment of the presence of God. 
And then there's this refrain of the angel. Again, I'm hopping back to Zechariah now. Zechariah 4.6. Maybe you've heard this verse before, but didn't know where it came from or its context. But after the golden lampstand and the olive tree vision he was given to Zechariah, the angel says this, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And God is promising the light of his presence, even in the darkness. He is promising the fulfillment of his work, that he has remembered his covenant promises, and all that goes into that is going to be accomplished, but his promises are going to be kept. The temple will be fully rebuilt, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Again, thinking back to the context of what's going on in this day and age. like What's God's big offer to them? They're living in chaos. They're living in confusion. They're living in transition. And they're trying to figure out, like, does God hate us or love us? Has he forsaken us or is he going to fulfill his promises? Has he abandoned us? Is he going to rebuild this thing but it doesn't look as good as maybe it used to? What's going on? God's big offer to them in their transition and their chaos wasn't a physical temple that would be bigger and better than ever. But it was a never-ending supply of oil for the golden lampstand near the veil. His solution, his promise, his offer is the light of his presence in a different kind of temple, better than any building could be. So which maybe like dig more into this theme of oil throughout the Bible. You realize oil is all over the place in the Bible? I'm sure someone's written their doctoral thesis on this. I'll do it justice in a few minutes here. But the symbol of oil, the metaphor of oil, right, the visible, tangible liquid poured out, speaks of the invisible presence of God. And then it just shows up everywhere. I think I have some lists here. So uh, when the promised land is talked about in Nehemiah 9, it's talked about being the land of olive oil. Because what marks the promised land is good is the presence of God. In the tabernacle, the lampstand was set up in front of the veil and oil was to be used because the presence of God dwelt in the tabernacle. When leaders were set apart for Israel, so you can read whether it's David or Saul or any other king, when they they were literally anointed for their leadership, they literally poured out oil on their head as a symbol of the presence of God being upon this person to mark them out in a different way that they will lead and rule as the presence of God is on them. The priests were dedicated to be holy. Leviticus 8 says, as the oil was then anointed on them, set apart God's presence on them, in them, to carry out their priestly duties. People would pour oil on the altar for sacrifice. Sometimes the oil was part of the sacrifice, but even before they would then do the sacrifice, the altar was set apart as holy, marked out with God's presence with oil. Next slide. 
If you want some good, fun reading, Leviticus 14 is how they would deal with those who were then unclean. And then they would become ritually clean with a process that the priest would do involving blood and oil. Leviticus 14 has some fun reading where they would take the olive oil in his hand, the priest would, and then he would put it on the right earlobe, the right thumb, and the right big toe. Like, that seems odd. But a setting apart of, again, the right side, which was viewed as the dominant leading side of your ear and your hand and your foot. You're walking, you're working, and you're hearing set apart for God. Cleansed. This is imagery in Psalm 133 of, of God's people being unified like the oil dripping down the beard of Aaron. James 5, oil is mentioned to be used as the elders are called to pray for the healing of the people and they would anoint with oil. Jesus is called the Messiah, literally, which means the anointed one. And then Jesus, in multiple places in the Gospels, his body is anointed for burial, entrusted to God in his presence. So oil is used everywhere for all sorts of things because what else is our hope? What else is our help? Again, back to Zechariah 4, back to the odd vision. Again, transition, chaos, questions, difficulty. Here's my answer, lampstand and olive trees. You're like, huh? Thanks, God, I think. What an odd solution for a bunch of people in limbo. What an odd message of hope for those who felt displaced and unsure, for those who felt overwhelmed, filled with angst, filled with disappointments, filled with questions. Will our lives be restored? Will our city be rebuilt? Will the temple and worship of God be resumed? Will we make it, God? God says, lampstand with oil. God says, I'm raising up from you an olive tree. If you read later in Zechariah, the, the two, he says, I'm going to use a priest and a king as those olive trees. And we know, reading through the lens of Jesus, God is saying, I'm raising up an olive tree from your midst to rule and lead you, priest and king. I'm going to give you never-ending oil to fulfill my covenant work. He will come to the Mount of Olives. He will pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is an old olive grove. He will die and be raised again to pour out the oil of the Holy Spirit on you for all time and forevermore. Why give that message to people in chaos? It's God's way of saying that my presence is the single greatest thing that you need. And I don't often believe that. That's my offer to you, is my presence through the finished work of Jesus and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The, the, the single greatest thing that you need is not a finished building, and the single greatest thing that you need is not a governmental ruler. The single greatest thing that you need is not a return to order from the chaos. I'm going to offer you the close light of my presence because God doesn't offer cheap solutions.
that he offers to mark you with his presence, to invite you into his presence. Or as we talked about last week, you were made for intimacy with God. And I get it back to our current day and our concerns and our issues and our questions. Sometimes it's just really hard to trust the invisible, right? (laughs) You're like, but uh, this is the real world and these are my problems and this is what I feel and this is what I see and this is what's on the news and this is my status with these people in my life. Like, it's really hard to trust the invisible. And sometimes God's presence feels really far away and distant, hard to know, hard to touch, hard to experience. But that's the gift, I think, that we get to be even as the church, the lampstand, the church. If you read Revelation, the lampstands. That we get to be honest about our collective challenges, but we also get to be reminded to each other. Zechariah, God remembers God remembers. God hasn't forgotten. God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He keeps his promises. He keeps his promises to his church. He keeps his promises to the world. He keeps his promises to you. And so tonight even, which may seem odd or weird or hokey in some ways, but we get a chance to even use visible things like oil, olive oil, Something visible to remind us of what is invisible. To remind us of a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. I think we all need to be reminded of our great hope. Our great help. We need to be reminded that it's not by might, nor by power, but by God's Spirit. That we are the temple through the work of Jesus, our great priest and king. We are the the lampstand. Or to use Jesus' words, you are the light of the world. We have the oil of his spirit. He will do it. So as we end and respond tonight, uh, I've brought some oil. It's just olive oil. It's not magic. But it's a physical reminder of the presence of God that's been accomplished through the work of Jesus. And so we're going to sing some songs before we take communion even. And I've invited some folks from our C team. Actually, uh, Kyle and Jessica, if you guys would, wouldn't mind coming up now and maybe just giving us some, some, some music as we do this. But I want to invite you uh, to come up um, and to allow a brother or a sister to put some oil on your head and to remind you that it's a sign and a symbol of God's presence and that he keeps his promises to you. Some of you I know in COVID don't like to be touched or don't feel comfortable yet being touched. Um, and so to you, I invite you, I put some candles out here as we talk about the, the lamp theme or the light theme. So you can come up and light a candle. And again, this is not some magic thing. It's just getting your body involved to be seeing light again and be reminding of God remembers and that his presence is offered to you too. Some of you may not feel comfortable doing that, and that's fine. We're not going to 
awkwardly draw it out and say, I saw you haven't come up yet. But I just want to invite us to have some space in the midst of a lot of discouragement and disruption and disappointment to be reminded of God's provision, our great hope. And then I would encourage you, if you feel able to, after someone puts some oil on your head, or if you want to put it on your hands, you can do that too if you prefer that, um, to maybe come up and touch a card. I'm not asking you to read it. I'm not asking you to... But just come up and touch a card and pray, realizing there are people in our church community who may feel differently than you right now. You may be like, celebration! Get out the trumpets! And they're weeping right now. And also, those of you that are weeping know that others are like really celebrating some things that God's doing. And there's space for both here. The oil of God's presence is good enough for us all. Whether we're weeping or whether we're sounding the trumpets and shouting. So I hope I explained that clearly enough. I'm going to have Kyle and Jessica maybe just give us a little bit before we move into that next song. Um, but yeah, as you feel that, come up. You can either light a candle if you feel more comfortable with that. Um, we'll have a few folks up here that will just put some oil on your head and remind you of a symbol of God's presence. And then we'll take communion after that.